0: Hey friends and welcome to You Deserve to Love Your Job with me, Arlene Pace Green. My goal is to help you identify and achieve your greatest aspirations and have a lot of fun along the way. I'm so glad you've joined me on this journey. Let's go. I am so excited to let you know that the You Deserve to Love Your Job book is available. It's in paperback and Kindle. I wrote the book for anyone who is looking for more purpose more meaning, and more joy in your work and life. Filled with examples, quizzes, and experiences from real people, including me, and the book lays out a roadmap to help you clarify your purpose and create an action plan to achieve it. Go get it. It's available on Amazon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I am so excited about this episode. As you may know, my background is in industrial and organizational psychology, which is the study of human behavior in the workplace. And in my education and training, we didn't spend a lot of time on the therapeutic process, and I really didn't fully understand it. But through my coaching work, I'd had several clients who wanted to explore therapeutic topics like family issues or family challenges, past trauma, potential disorders, their own history, things that aren't a part of the coaching process. So I'd recommended them to therapists that I knew or heard great things about, but I also felt like I should experience it for myself so I could give a better description and explanation of what could be gained through therapy. So last year, I found a Christian therapist and started the therapeutic process. And let me tell you, it has been so helpful. I've explored some things I didn't think I was handling well, different life goals, you know, things I just wanted to handle better. And as someone mentioned to me, therapy helps in distinguishing the past from the present, meaning it helped me and myself, others be more aware of how my past experiences, beliefs really are influencing my today decisions and behaviors. So in today's episode, you get to meet my personal psychologist and therapist, Dr. Dana Nelson. We're going to explore this topic, is therapy for me? And if it is, we talk about ways to find a therapist. And I know that the cost of therapy can be one of the biggest barriers for many of us in you know, engaging in the therapeutic process. So if you can't afford therapy, there are other options to explore. Certainly your insurance company, many insurance companies offer You know, a certain set number of sessions for free, as does your employee assistance program, which your workplace often also has a certain number of sessions you can have for free. Your local university, as we talk about in the program, to become a therapist requires a lot of hours. So a lot of times there may be students that are kind of further along in the process that are offering free therapy to the community. There are free online options for group therapy. And then there are several community-based resources. I know sometimes it can be hard to access them, but there are community-based resources that you should look into. So you can search for your county or your city free therapy and see what options there are. It might be a waiting list, but there are some options to explore. And I also recently have found a couple of podcasts that I love. So I not only host a podcast, I listen to them regularly regularly. And two that are specifically about therapy, I think are very helpful. One is called Can't Afford Therapy. And they talk about different therapeutic topics and how we ourselves can apply them to to learn and just to achieve our goals. And then there's a second one called Woman Evolve. And it is by Pastor Sarah Jakes Roberts. She's a Christian pastor. And in that podcast, she explores a lot of therapeutic topics to help women evolve into who God has called us to be. And her podcast is also a lot of fun. It's kind of a girlfriend feel um, of women talking to women. So it's also a great option as well. So don't let cost be a barrier to engaging in some way in the therapeutic process. And this episode is linked to chapter seven of my book, where I talk about how to make change happen in your life. And one of those category of changes that I talk about is adapting your mindset. And therapy is so helpful in adapting your mindset. So I can't wait for you to hear from this amazing therapist, Dr. Dana Nelson. Dr. Nelson received her undergraduate degree from San Diego State University, and she received her PsyD, which is a psychology doctorate in clinical psychology from Azusa Pacific University in Southern California. She's a California girl. She first became a licensed psychologist in California in 2002 and began a practice in the central coast of California. She and her family then relocated to Shreveport, Louisiana in 2009, where she worked in a group private practice for four and a half years. She and her family eventually settled in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and she has been a licensed psychologist in Texas since February of 2015. She has worked and trained in so many different settings with a culturally diverse group of individuals. She began her early training at LA County USC Violence Interventions Program, working with victims of violence. After being licensed, she has had private practices in three states and has worked for various facilities and contracts, including veteran disability exams, corrections, foster and youth forensic psychology, custody evaluations, parent coordination, substance abuse treatment, and long-term care, working with the geriatric population. So she has a very diverse set of experiences. In her private practice, Dr. Nelson has worked for many years with attention and learning disabilities. Disruptive behaviors in children, child abuse, Christian counseling, which is what I value so much from her, psychoeducational assessment, and personality and psychological assessment of children and adults. So she has a very diverse history. She's an exceptional therapist. You are going to enjoy and learn so much from this conversation. So thank you all for joining and enjoy. so much for joining today's podcast. As you all know, one of my favorite things to do on this podcast is to introduce you to people who I love, who have helped me in important ways. And Dana, you are definitely one of those people. So our conversations have helped me just gain so much clarity and understanding, have helped me to enjoy aspects of my life more. And even as a psychologist, I feel like, because I'm more focused on work and leadership, has given me a much deeper appreciation for therapy and the therapeutic process than than absolutely than I had before. So thank you. And thank you for joining. I'm looking forward to this conversation.
1: You are welcome. Thank you yeah. for having me.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, let's just jump in. You know, the goal of this is just to help people understand therapy, the therapeutic process, maybe what's for them or what's not for them. Like, what is therapy? If someone just said, what, what is it? Like, how would you describe what it is?
1: Well, talk therapy is being able to talk to another person who's empathic, who's non judgmental, who's not your friends or family, basically, mm-hmm. doesn't have any skin in the game or any reason to say one thing or another. And so it's the difference between talking to a friend or family and a professional. And a professional is someone who's done the schooling who's gotten their master's degree or, or PhD or PsyD and then gone through all the clinical hours um, before they can give the advice. So like for example, a master's level LPC or MFT or LCSW has gone through their two years of coursework and then they've gone through at least 3000 hours of supervised clinical experience. And with that, you can diagnose and you formulate treatment plans with the clients based on the problem. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of a big difference. So, you know, you're being able to, to talk talk things through with somebody who's empathic and understands. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and when you said that two things came to mind, one is I just learned recently that it was 3000 hours. I was talking to a friend of mine who's <laughs> pursuing considering pursuing a master's degree in, um, I think clinical psychotherapy or, or something. And uh, I could not believe it was that. I mean, that is significant. That's like
1: what, over a year,
0: like how long, that's a couple of years.
1: Well, I think it's harder for master's levels because you have to rely on people to spend time with you to, to supervise you. And every hour is face to face. So like for psychologists our in our pre-doctoral year. We yeah. have an internship and you really can get 2,000, 40 hours a week is 2,000 hours and every hour counts. So it's okay. like one year of internship before you graduate and another year afterwards of another 1,500 to 2,000 um, hours. It's usually at a full-time job setting. Mm. So I think it's a little harder for masters because they're not usually getting their hours that way. So it might right. it takes them up to five years, I think.
0: Wow. That, yeah, that that definitely distinguishes from the family friends <laughs> right <laughs> in terms of training expertise we're not winging it yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly not just based on ex- your own personal experience i mean that's that's significantly different um and then you also mentioned i was curious you said talk therapy and i hadn't really thought right. about it this way but talk therapy which you're
1: talking with one another you're
0: talking right right what would be the other kind of therapy like that it's called oh. talk therapy like what when you said that i was like oh it is talk therapy what's the i guess other- it,
1: i i don't know what would be another kind of therapy but okay you know you're talking to each other so okay. i guess the difference would be working with children who don't, aren't necessarily always talking verbalizing their feelings you might do play therapy with a the child so okay Be one big difference. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. When you said that, I was like, ooh, what else? What other kind of therapy could I be doing?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or group, group therapy. You're still talking. Therapy. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. So what else would you say is a difference? Because I do think some people think about, well, I talk, and I've seen this, you know, in some groups online, even like, well, I talk to my friends and family all the time or have great relationships with them. Certainly, one difference is the the training aspect that went into it. Like, what do you think is the real difference between just talking to a kind of a trained therapist versus conversations we might have with our family and friends about things as well.
1: Well, I think that's a great start. And if you can resolve your problem with your friends and family, that's, that's great. And the more support you have, probably the less likely you'll even need a professional because Mm -hmm. everyday life problems you can talk through with your friends and family. Mm -hmm. But if it gets to be significant or at a clinical level, they probably aren't going to be able to help you enough. So it's when you Mm -hmm. get to that point, well, I've exhausted my resources. I don't know what to do. Or you realize you need to change inside and going back to your family of origin may be the source of your problem or why you're you're experiencing the problems that you need. So Mm -hmm. you need to get an outside professional opinion or you don't know what's wrong with you. You need a diagnosis. Um, Let's Mm -hmm. say you're really depressed. You can't get out of bed. No your family may not be able to fit to help that if it's a clinical level. Right, You you might need medication. You might need to really get perspective um, from a professional. And Mm -hmm. so if your level of pathology, the higher the pathology, the more likely you need a professional. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And maybe even medication. Right.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think that not being able to get out of bed, I've heard that from several people and you're right. Like as a, just being a supportive friend myself or supportive family member, there are certain things because of your experience that you feel like you might have some insight on or ask some right. questions, have ideas. But certain things you haven't experienced, and I feel like that now. Like right. you when know, I think about my daughter or just other you know situations that come up, I'm like, oh, that's interesting, but it's not something you've experienced. So if you haven't, if you don't have people around you that have experienced, then probably their right. ability to help you through it maybe more challenging. You know, if you haven't, if you have an experience that I can't get out of bed feeling, it's kind of hard to figure out how do you do that? Um, so, okay. And there's
1: just so much, you know, evidence-based therapy now that we're not just speaking from experience. Mm -hmm. Ethically, we have to use evidences. We know that this helps. We know that kind of behavior therapy helps with anxiety disorders. Like we know a lot more, you know, more about the brain that you know, average people won't know or nutrition and so forth mm-hmm. especially if you're suicidal i would definitely go you know straight to a professional because you don't want to mess around with that you know mm-hmm.
0: yeah you or i mean i guess anyone around you it's like right. that's yeah that's the time not to rely on professional evidence-based meaning you know it works it has has some research behind it saying it works as opposed to kind of what right. you know, my best thought of the day kind of a thing right okay. <laughs> right Okay. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about either therapy or the therapeutic process? What are some things that maybe we believe or we think about it that you think are probably inaccurate, like misconceptions about it?
1: Probably the biggest one is the that old saying, I'm not crazy. You know, I'm not crazy. Yeah. Or if you're going to therapy, you must be crazy or Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of it has to do with your cultural, your family background, or what your friends will say, what your family will say. If you're psychologically minded, we call it meaning people are open to it and understand it. If you're not yeah. very psychologically minded, you really have the most extreme view that that's just for crazy people, and and what is crazy even—that's pretty pejorative <laughs> term. Like mm-hmm. it's thrown around a lot, which is not a clinical term, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just, word that people say when they don't understand what they're talking about but Mm -hmm. but really in reality you know most people who come are depressed that's the highest reason for people to come to therapy second being anxiety and there's a high prevalence for it unfortunately in society probably 20 percent of you know the population at any one point is probably going to have a depression depressive episode and that could be from grief or or whatever And even now I read a statistic, it's about twenty percent of the population is currently suffering from some form. So that's one out of five people. So if it's just Mm -hmm. for crazy people, that's pretty We're a lot a lot of us are crazy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And not and not everyone needs therapy because they're clinically depressed or have anxious. They could just have some life transitions or, you know, need to work some things out with their family or 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 workplace or whatever it is. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm. No, that, that's probably the biggest one. Another mm. one might be that it's an easy process, and it's not always easy. It can be if you just learn some some coping skills or deep breathing exercises or or add this or that, and that can be brief and, and relatively painless. But for some people who have really deep, complicated issues like complex trauma or or personality issues or interpersonal problems, it might take years so it's mm-hmm. a long commitment for those with deeper issues. So
0: mm-hmm. yeah, People yeah. Aren't
1: really wanting to do that kind of work for a long mm-hmm. time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I could see that. Cause I feel like I see that in coaching too. Like I think, and I think it's not probably therapy coaching and just life in general. I feel like we all want the quick fix, you know, it's right. the same way I feel about my health and wellness. It's like, tell me the one thing I need to do this week. <laughs> right? <laughs> so that by next week I can be at my health goal. You know, we just all right. want that we like to think that something is the one thing when in reality, it's probably lots of things over a period of time. And it, someone sent me a text message yesterday about something about your health journey unfolding. And that's how I feel like it's been, it's like an, it's an unfolding over time. And I imagine therapy can be the same. I feel like that's even like my experience is like you, you get to one level of understanding and that opens up something else.
1: Exactly. Kind of like a. An onion feeling, you know?
0: Yes, exactly. So, yeah, I imagine some people don't have, um, you have to have a level of patience to deal with some complicated onions that you're trying to get to the bottom of right. in your
1: life. Yeah, <laughs> well, you could be working with someone for months and then finally get to another layer of the onion realize, oh, you have this problem too. You never, mm-hmm. never mention So, <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: yeah. Yeah, because I mean, there's a level of vulnerability of what we share, I'm sure, in the process or what we're even maybe aware of even. Um, in the process that comes into that as well. So yeah, I could, I could see that. Yeah. Some people think maybe let me go to two sessions and right. I'll be good or something. Yeah.
1: Right. Or they just ask, well, how do I get over this? You know, right. it's, it's a lot more tell me- complicated to just give you a five minute answer. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> tell me the top two things I need to do to get over this in the next week. Ah, that would be awesome. Um, Yeah. I right. get that. Um, And I know you have a passion where you mentioned it when you were talking about nutrition and you have a passion for integrative, but I'm saying that right, mental health. Can you just explain what that is? Um, What does that word mean and what does that mean to you?
1: Well, there is in medicine now that they call integrative medicine or functional medicine, and that's looking for root causes of of health for the body. So let's Mm -hmm. say you have an autoimmune disorder, they're going to look for the root cause rather Mm -hmm. than just traditionally throw medication at it or partial treatments, they want to get to the cause of it. So for mental health, it's kind of similar in that there's a lot you can do naturally to improve your brain health. So if you improve your brain, you're improving your your mind, your thoughts, emotions, your behavior, right? So there's a lot to brain health. And so one person that I particularly study and follow is Daniel Amen. And he has developed all this research um, based on brain scans. He's a pretty famous psychiatrist out of um, California. And the way he describes it is your brain is the the consistency of soft butter encased in a spiny shell, basically. Mm -hmm. And we should really be aware of our brain because we don't think of it, right? And the brain directs everything about our behavior and our emotions. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about, nutrition, um, holistic lifestyle and wellness, exercise, understanding your genetic influences, they call it epigenetics, Mm -hmm. and how they all play together, and trying to naturally improve your mood. If you have organic depression, let's say, like a hereditary background, and there's no reason why you're depressed, and all of a sudden you're, you're coming down with this depressive episode that comes out of nowhere, it could be something biological that's going on. So kind of improving your overall diet Mm -hmm. the standard american diet is not good for the brain (laughs) basically Mm -hmm. it's not good for the body so many people have obesity and diabetes or pre-diabetes well that totally affects the brain as well Mm -hmm. and so another thing it's for longevity and um, preserving your brain health because there's an alarming statistic now that people half of people 85 years old and older are probably going to have alzheimer's and Alzheimer's is a very preventable disease because 95% of it is lifestyle and food choices and in all these these different areas that helps your brain health. Wow. But the markers start 20, 30 years in advance. So when someone's manifesting cognitive decline in over overt way, it's been in the making for 30 years. And so the work is really in preventing it. You know, once you get to that point, it's hard. You might be able to slow it down or slow its progression, but you're may not. you not going to be able to cure it when you're already advanced, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So how you're improving that. And you can minimize medication if you're living this way. Mm-hmm. And so it's looking at what Dr. Amen calls four circles and it's biological factors, epigenetics, nutrition, um, exercise, any disease that you need to cure. There are psychological factors, and that's your thought processes, like irrational thoughts. If you have past traumas, healing those traumas or family dynamics, um, interpersonal skills. And then social circle would be your relationships and improving your relationships with your loved ones or work relationships or goals with fair finance and family and friends. All of those things, improving those in connection with connection to people and the world these are all scientifically proven improve the brain so and then the last one is is spiritual and improving your spiritual life if you have a faith if you don't have a faith and it's really knowing your why and meaning and purpose for life those are all important things for brain health and longevity hmm. so those are areas that i try to help people with
0: wow yeah i mean I don't know if other people listening did this, but when you said 30, you said 85 and you said 30, 35 years before that, I'm like, doing the math in my <laughs> mind, it's like well, that, that's just another reminder on why just our overall health is so important or, you know, right. like you said, physical health, mental health our social support. I mean, yeah, that's, uh, that's surprising. I don't know if I realized that so much of Alzheimer's could be prevented by it is.
1: there Alzheimer's. is one. Gene, but that's you know, and if you found out you had a gene, you can do a lot to mitigate that. You just have mm-hmm. to be more strict on your diet. Kind of like, okay, you have a a trait for celiac, you know, you're going to have to, or you have celiac disease, you know, you're not going to be able to eat gluten. You know, it's the mm-hmm. same kind of thing. If you have the gene, you just have to be strict about it. Or if you have diabetes, right. you're going to have to be strict about it. Mm-hmm. But most of us can prevent it, so. Wow. And and they're calling Alzheimer's type three diabetes now because there's a lot of similarities to how your brain is metabolizing food and insulin. Wow.
0: Okay. That's really interesting. That's, yeah, that's just another reason to, for us all to be thinking about our holistic health for sure. And I know i you know, I've learned that myself just in small and big ways Um, in terms of how much, how I feel physically is tied to my mood. You know, it's just just a reminder of how we're integrated beings. We're not like mental beings or physical beings or spiritual beings. No, we're spiritual beings with all these different experiences. And I mean, I feel like this integrated approach to mental health, to physical health. When I think about generations, I feel like it's more of a newer focus. Like, I mean, I feel like I hear it now. I don't know if I heard it a lot growing up necessarily. No,
1: I mean, it really is a, a recent phenomenon. I even just kind of discovered it and started learning about it about five years ago. It mm-hmm. didn't exist when I was in school 20 years ago and didn't have any learning about nutrition when I was in grad school. So this, I had to self-discover all of this stuff and research is just, you know, developing over it. So.
0: In those areas. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, I, and I feel like our, like, I, I know I think about my daughter, her friends and just younger generations. I feel like they, because of maybe they grew up with more understanding of some of this they're maybe a bit more tuned to their kind of this integrated nature of, you know, eating and physical health and nutrition and emotional health, et cetera. But do you also see that show up in therapy? Do you see generational differences in people's approach to therapy or their willingness to be in the therapeutic process? Like, I feel like it's something newer for my generation, but I don't know. That may just be the people I'm around. (laughs) I'm not sure. (laughs) Like, do you see a difference in that?
1: Um, I think it's definitely more widely accepted now for the younger generation, so mm-hmm. there's less stigmas, you know, about it. Older people are less likely to be psychologically minded, but it's really, a, I think, the biggest difference is whatever their their the lifespan. There's different issues that they're going through. So, you know, mm-hmm. if children are there; they're going to be brought there by their parents because of a problem. You know, if you're a teenager, you might be dealing with peer issues or. You're, dynamics with your family and, and, or you're first manifesting a depressive episode for the first time where you have social anxiety or, so they're going to be dealing with all the things that are within that, that lifespan or their season of life. You know, Mm. young adults will be dealing with finding their identity and what they want to do with their life and discovering who they are and their relationships is a big focus. So Mm. with college students. And then um, people in their midlife are dealing with family issues and their marital conflicts. And Mm -hmm. and then they're they're a parent, they're dealing with their child problems and Mm -hmm. and so forth. And, you know, seniors I've worked with, I've had the fortunate experience to really work across the lifespan. Mm I was a child psychologist most of my career for 20 years. And then I also have other experience with, I worked at nursing homes for a year. So I got to see the other end of the spectrum yeah. and they really are focused on reflecting on their life and reminiscing and making sense of their life and, and, mm-hmm. and towards the end of their life and, and the meaning. So they have a different perspectives. In my practice, when I see seniors, they tend to want to get it over quickly. <laughs> you know, they're okay. not into, I don't want to spend, you know, the next <laughs> two years of therapy. So yeah. they're just they might have some grief or they might have some issues. They want to kind of figure it out and move on because they've already got their resources or, you know, they're set in their way. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, does, and so does, do work things in that lifespan, do you hear work situations? Are people bringing work situations to therapy as well? Like do you hear a lot about work or.
1: I, I do hear a lot about work when I work with professionals, particularly because that's you know a big part of their life, especially males. Mm -hmm. you know male professionals are going to talk a lot about work and their goals and what's Mm -hmm. going on um so it just depends on what what the client is going through if they're professionals they're going to be talking about professional things now there could be work stress so then i deal with sometimes work related stress Mm -hmm. sometimes they even take a leave from work and that's the reason they're coming in because they're they can't handle it or you know i've had a postal worker for example, had to leave from all of the mental abuse he was experiencing at work. So it just mm-hmm. kind of depends on that situation. Or if somebody has a life event, like a death or a loss, mm-hmm. then they need to take a leave and some working with work and filling out the disability forms and mm-hmm. things like that. So, I mean, it is a part of people's life. They spend most of their time mm-hmm. during the day at work. So usually something's going to come up you know, Yeah. interpersonally. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I and I could see how the issues change as you're saying over based on what's most prominent for you at that point in life. And I've had some clients ask me this, you know, I deal with mainly work leadership coaching with leaders. And what do you think I have a perspective on this too, but I'm curious, like, what do you think is the difference between therapy and coaching? Like if someone was to ask you, what's the difference? What do you think is the difference between those two?
1: Um, well, I would think the main difference is the level of pathology and, you know, clinical level of, of work. So people are coming in for therapy because they may have a clinical diagnosis of, let's say, depression or anxiety and the scope of practice. So if you haven't gone through those 3,000 hours of supervised experience, you know, ethically and professionally, you shouldn't be dealing with clinical level of problems as coach. Coach, you're dealing with, I'm guessing, I'm Speaking from what I'm presuming yeah. it means, it's yeah, you know, they have a goal and you're helping them reach their goals, you know, in their life or profession or career or sometimes there's relationship coaches, but it's not, it's not because you have an anxiety disorder, mm-hmm. or you have a personality disorder, you know, you have to know your your scope based on your professional experience. Mm-hmm. So like you have a PhD in org psych, right? And mm-hmm. so you could have gotten your internships and become a psychologist mm-hmm. but that's probably a difference so you're focused on work mm-hmm. and dynamics of the organization versus trauma and depression and anxiety mm-hmm. OCD yeah. or those types.
0: i totally agree with that like we don't i think as coaches we don't deal with any level of disorder you know that's not we're not trained in it we're not trained to identify it diagnose it or treat it. So that I think you're right. That's definitely not part of it. And then I think also from a coaching perspective, we're really trained in getting you to something, not necessarily it's more forward than backward. Whereas I feel like therapy does both. Like it's still a a look towards what you want to accomplish and where you want to go. But there's also a piece of looking back to see okay, what for my history relates to this and you know how do I deal with maybe even more situations, experiences, traumas, whatever it is in the past. And how does that impact today? Whereas coaching is much more today forward. It's like, okay, you're here. You want to get there. Where do you want
1: to be? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about some strategies to get you there. So we kind of go, you might dip into the history to learn lessons learned, but you know, the vast majority of the time, 90% of the time is really on where do you go from here to there? So I agree. Yeah. It's definitely not disorders and it's much more It's much more about the goal setting and how do you get to a goal than it is anything else. And certainly not the
1: history. And I would think we do a fair amount of coaching also in therapy. So Mm -hmm. you just kind of naturally do that. If somebody has therapeutic goals, you're trying to help them. And one encompasses the other in therapy, but you can't conversely do the pathology and coaching.
0: Yeah, that's true, actually, because a lot of the uh, coaches I work with are therapists. So they Um, are, yeah, a lot of them are, or they were therapists, like they they are therapists because that's their training. And they've chosen to only focus on the coaching aspect. So they said, sometimes they go back into their therapy skills, but they've chosen to focus on coaching. So I think therapy is a little broader. It's like three to like getting you forward, whereas coaching is much more about today forward. It's a kind of a more limited focus, I guess, for people. But yeah, I've noticed several of the Therapists, they say that I think sometimes they just maybe coaching might feel because you're not dealing with as much trauma and maybe it feels like a lighter process.
1: I don't I would, I get the I impression so. it's probably more. Yeah, it's a lot less stressful. Yeah, <laughs> that's what, what I'm working with. <laughs> you're, you know, less problems. Yes, you're you're moving the the growth, you know, in a smaller degree versus all yeah. the way from a lot of other past problems Uh and that's
0: the sense i and if
1: you are you know a lot of times people probably have already had a lot of therapy before they got into coaching Mm -hmm. so they've done their work (laughs) and now i want to just advance in my personal life and my career or so forth
0: yeah yeah that's the impression i get in talking to some people who have chosen as therapists who have chosen to become like exclusively coaches it's like it's just a little (laughs) maybe a little less stressful is the word a little you know it's just it has a little bit more of a lighter feel i think than therapy can feel sometimes which makes sense when you think about what you're dealing with so
1: exactly i i do a fair amount of health coaching or brain coaching from the integrative medicine it's mostly educating people and Mm -hmm. motivating them to change their diet and lifestyle so Mm -hmm. but when they don't come in necessarily with for that it's hard to get people to be motivated so
0: yeah yeah i could see that i could see that (laughs) So, like, what do you think about, what helps people get the most out of therapy or what gets in the way? Like, what do you think is either, wow, that really helps you get the most out of this process, and what are some things that maybe get in the way of you getting a lot out of therapy?
1: Well, there are studies show there are five stages of being ready to change, so it kind of depends on what stage you're at. The stages are pre-contemplation, contemplation, contemplation, um, preparation, action, and then maintenance. So if you are in the pre-contemplation stage of, there, of change, mm-hmm. basically you don't see a problem with yourself, you don't really want to change, and those people might present in therapy because they're pressured by a family member, or their mm-hmm. spouse, or a parent, or the court ordered, or work made them go, or some other form brought them to you, and they don't really see that they have a problem. So. It's really hard to change when there's that level of self, lack of self-awareness mm-hmm. or resistance to change you're going to only get so far so because they're not going to invest in it, mm-hmm. you know, or they don't, they don't trust you. They don't really want to be there and so forth. And then there's the contemplation stage where you kind of realize mm, there might be a problem here. I need to fix it. You're starting to get some awareness, but you're not really ready to take the action to change. So mm-hmm. you probably get you know, a good amount of those people that come in, what can I do? And they don't even know why they're there sometimes, you know, I just know something's wrong, but I'm not ready. And you might give homework or books or recommendations or, 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 and they don't do it. (laughs) So they don't do homework, you know? Uh So preparation stage is they're actually getting ready to make that step. Mm. So they're more willing to think about taking action. And then the action stage is probably where the most change um happens because they're engaged in the process they're reflecting or they're, mm-hmm. they're taking your suggestions and homework in between sessions and reading books so getting moving them to the action stage is probably the goal and you're going to get the most out of that stage and then maintenance is kind of just keeping progress going mm-hmm. so tuning up when you need to and having a growth there's so much out there on the growth mindset which you probably yeah. feel with coaching so you know if you have that you're going to be moving towards that staying in that space and so some of that some of the blocks are those resistance lack of insight or self-awareness that you have a problem or you see that a lot in couples there be where one person is just not aware or dysfunctional dynamics if someone has violence, you know, and they're not ready to change, it's not really indicated. You don't want to do couples therapy with somebody that is going to be in danger. That's an incidence where you wouldn't, you know, get much out of it. Or And a rare example would be someone with high psychopathic traits. So they would be contraindicated in therapy because they actually are learning how to manipulate people better in therapy. So. Dang it, I
0: hadn't thought about that. <laughs> yes, okay. So yeah, you're using what you learn for ill intent or to, right. uh, to hurt or harm or whatever it might be. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, so like, what do you think? If so, let's say when you're thinking about, we're talking about those stages, I was thinking, yeah, there probably are either, let's say a couple where one is in action, one's in- pre-contemplative. Or maybe you're a parent or, you know, a friend or something and you may outside in, you see something that you're like, I, I think they should go. And they maybe aren't there yet. Is it still helpful to go? Like what do you recommend people do? Like should you just do people have to get there on their own? Does therapy help you get there? Like what's your thoughts on if someone It's is- a
1: first step of awareness. So if okay. they if they come to you mm-hmm. for therapy, then you meet them where they're at. And they probably aren't going to, if they really aren't investing in it, they'll probably get frustrated and not stick it out. So, Mm -hmm. or they'll move to the next stage. It just might take longer. It just depends on the person and the resources, you you know, it could be a waste of money if you really aren't wanting to change. So,
0: Yeah. And I see that in coaching too. Sometimes, you know, some people come to coaching because they really want it and they want to get better. And I think to your point, they're probably in more of that action stage. Like I want to do something. They've already tried some things. They're just trying to try better things. And some people come because maybe their manager told them they should. (laughs) And they come a little bit more, less trusting, not as excited, not even sure if this is needed. And so, yeah, I could see that. But through the process, some people do figure out, oh, yeah, there's some things I really want to work on. Or some people decide, yeah, i I was, I thought I was right. I don't need this. You know what I mean? So right. it kind of depends on the person, what they do with it, but I could see how that could be a jumpstart for some people
1: coming. And to I, it. I, one way I help formulate goals with the client is have them fill out this one page miracle, which I got from Dr. Amon's materials. Mm-hmm. And that is looking at your ideal goal for yourself, including the, all those four circles, the biological factors, psychological factors, social factors, and spiritual factors and if you post that somewhere where you can see these this is what i want and out of my life am i behaving according to that Mm -hmm. so if you're trying to be have a healthy brain lose weight you know and you're out drinking all the time is that good for your brain you know if i'm using a neurotoxin then you're looking at that and you're not really behaving according to your own you know confessed goals that you have Mm -hmm. it's kind of keep all minds accountable to who you want to be
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm yeah that makes okay yeah that makes sense I do that sometimes in coaching like what's your ideal where are you trying to get to ideally um but I like the idea of those four circles actually that's really interesting so yeah so let's say someone's interested in finding a therapist like what what advice would you give for finding the right therapist for them like what would you what do you recommend Think people think about is race gender important like what are what are things you think about
1: Definitely, those things are important, but it's usually up to that individual if that's important to them. but I think if they're doing their research, look for the backgrounds and and beliefs or culture of that person does that most align with you. You're probably going to feel the most comfortable immediately with somebody with similar background, whether it's cultural, whether it's a language barrier, whether it's faith, faith, you probably want some of the most similarities. It's not always necessary because maybe the an expert in the problem that you have would be better than that let's say you have an eating disorder well you probably want to get the best eating disorder person mm. over those factors it's just, it just depends but if it's just a life transition or anxiety most people are trained in anxiety and depression so i would say we're all experiencing that because that's what everybody is most likely to have but if you have a specific problem or like obsessive compulsive disorder mm-hmm. or substance abuse maybe you want somebody who has more specialty in that over mm-hmm. the faith if you can get the whole package that's ideal but that's not always the case so yeah i know certain culturals will always look for someone who looks for them like african americans or you know they tend to gravitate towards other african-american therapists and christians will probably gravitate towards more christian therapists Mm-hmm. Counseling, and it totally makes sense. I would do the same thing if I were them. So mm-hmm. we all have our biases, whether we admit it or not. So we're going to lead from our own beliefs in some mm-hmm. unconscious way.
0: Okay, yeah, because I, I mean, I know that was one of the things that was important to me. I think that was the most important thing. Is was like I have to find someone who's Christian because that base, like I base my life on that. So it's like I have right. to understands that and gives advice or ideas within that context for me. So what, what what do you think is like faith? I know you have a specialty in that. Like what is faith-based counseling? Like what does that mean to you if someone was looking for that?
1: Well, for me particularly, I have a Christian background. So if they want biblical counseling or, or faith-based counseling, I will counsel them from that perspective. So, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a spiritual matter or verse that might Be helpful for them to memorize working on their identity of who they are, Mm -hmm. those are tremendously helpful. And studies show that faith based counseling is very effective in the outcome studies, even more so than traditional secular counseling if you have a faith. So, you know, I look at it as they tend to get better quicker if they're really utilizing their faith. So, Mm. and this world is going in many different directions, so being grounded in that is really, really helpful. So if somebody has a different faith, I'll meet them where they are, help them explore in that. Or if they have no faith, then that's fine too. I see all different types of people. I work with Hindus and Muslims and we work just fine. But we did have some commonality in that we had a belief in something or you know, some higher power moral compass. So mm-hmm. kind of meeting them where they are. From a Christian perspective, for me, what I love is that all of the research On um, cognitive psychology, which is probably the most used, um, using changing your thoughts to help your emotions and so forth. It was written about 2000 years ago in the Bible. So there's so many verses on meditation, meditating on verses or as a man think as he is. And so there's no contraindication between modern day brain science and the Bible. So Mm I really love that. I'm kind of integrating both.
0: Yeah, there there are a lot of verses that talk about the mind. Right? In, in, in transforming your thoughts, taking your right. thoughts captive, thinking on good things. Like when you said that, I just started thinking about how many, how big a theme that is in the Bible, really and how many verses there are about the importance of managing your thoughts, not not right. just letting them Run wild <laughs> to a certain exactly. extent, like how do you, and how do you go about doing that? Yeah, there you're right. There's a I hadn't thought about that, but there is a, a lot
1: on anxiety. You're right. You know, be anxious yes. for nothing, but put all your 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 thoughts and prayers and petitions to the Lord.
0: Yes, there are a ton on that. Interesting. Okay. So any last thoughts? So before we close, I want to do a lightning round, which is just designed to help people get to know you a little better. A few quick questions, quick answers, but any final thoughts or things you'd want people to consider about in terms of this question, like is therapy for me? Any final thoughts before we do the lightning round?
1: Oh, I guess if you are just stuck and you know that you have repeating problems that you can't move fast or you're feeling your quality of life is poor and you're not reaching your goals in life, if you're having relational problems then you might need a professional help so that would be kind of a benchmark you know are you having problems in socially your relationships and work or school that's impairing your functioning or ability to form that's when you really need professional help
0: okay good i love that um well, thank you for joining. I'm going ask you these questions just so people can get to know you and your journey a bit more. Um, so three questions. And the first one is, what is one thing that helped you figure out what you wanted to do that you wanted to be a clinical psychologist or a therapist? Like what's one thing in life that helped you figure that out?
1: Probably the biggest thing that influenced me was my faith or becoming a Christian. So I have a business. My undergrad was in business marketing, so I was in the corporate world for my first Five years out of out of college, and so I just, as I grew in my relationship, I realized I wanted to help people, so I wanted to do something more meaningful. So that's really what started. Once I got into grad school, I just loved it so much. I knew that was where I was supposed to be. So, that oh, was that's probably awesome! Biggest... I
0: didn't realize that. I didn't realize you made that career transition. Like, what helped you? Because I know a lot of people think about making a transition, but maybe. Don't you know that because you went right. to school for business marketing now, you're in that career for five years. Like, some people would look at that and say, I'd invested night, it would be hard for some people to walk away from that and right. now go back to school for something different. What do you think helped you make that transition?
1: I mean, maybe just my age, I was in my 20s, so that's not yeah. as you know. I started, I think, my psychology. Um, I started in a master's program and then transferred into a society program, but I went back to school like. 26 is when I, or 27, I think, when I actually started. So mm-hmm. it's harder, obviously, in the later years of your career to make that. But you can. I, there were some people in my school that were already, you know, well into their 30s and 40s in mm-hmm. that transition. So I don't think it's ever too late, you know, if you have time mm-hmm. of life.
0: It's
1: yeah. All to do.
0: Yeah. Right about that. You're gonna spend the rest of your life doing something. Might as well be something you feel called. Right. to, Right. Sure. <laughs> um, okay. So what is one thing you do to do consistently to enjoy your life? Like what's something
1: you do regularly? Um, ec- exercise. I love to exercise. I love uh, nature. So growing up in California, spent a lot of time mm-hmm. in my life outdoors and in mountains and beaches and hiking. So that's really important. And, I think that's important for most people because studies show that even for depression, that taking exercise in nature is just as effective as an antidepressant. So mm. that's really important. I don't always have time and it's hard to find here in Dallas, but just yeah. making an effort to go to like the Arboretum or a nature trail or things like that, really, I really enjoy.
0: Spending wow. time with
1: family, I mean, that's mm-hmm. a big priority of mine. My my church involvement—that's a big priority of mine. Well,
0: wow, I—I don't know if I knew it was that. I knew it was important, like this kind of outside activity. You know how important it was to your mental health, but as effective as an antidepressant is, pretty effective. So yeah, the Japanese outside.
1: call it forest bathing. So they were, oh, do they? They recommend people go take walks in the woods. You know, and it's kind of healing to the mind. So I would definitely. Ooh,
0: I love leave that. that. I love that. Okay. And then last question, what is a word of wisdom or a piece of advice that you live by?
1: Um, let's see, a word of wisdom. I would say live your life, like be mindful of your, your brain, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, going back to the integrative medicine. Be aware of those four circles, the biological factors, psychological factors, social and um, spiritual factors for your overall quality of life you improve your your brain, you're going to live longer. You're going to live happier. You're going to have better relationships. So mm. Be mindful of those things.
0: Yeah. And I mean, and I feel like that's something we could all do. Like I'm already envisioning my circles, <laughs> like you know, kind <laughs> of a, these circles of biological, spiritual, social, psychological. Do I get those right? Are those the four circles?
1: Spiritual was the last one. Yeah.
0: Okay. And um, just figuring out what, how, where am I today and what ideal would look like and then figuring out what, you know, where do I want to focus going forward, whether that's therapy or whatever, it's going to help me get there. Just being mindful of that and aware of that, I think could be really, really helpful. I love that. So.
1: Right. And, and that's how you're going to love your life, you know, basically.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love that. So, well, thank you so much for joining. This has been so fun. Thank you all for joining today's conversation. As always, you'll see more information about Dr. Nelson in the show notes, uh, but you can find me on Instagram at Arlene underscore Pace underscore green. I appreciate you all joining and be well. If you love this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You're also invited to join my private email group where just for joining, you will receive a checklist for getting your LinkedIn profile in top shape and a link to the first chapter of my book. Click join the crew in the show notes. I also invite you to visit my website where you can shop our t-shirt collection designed to help you fulfill your purpose, love your work and enjoy your life. I have them all, wear one almost every episode and know you will love them. Thanks so much for joining me on this journey, let's go.